seniors living with mental health and addiction challenges in B.C. who are at risk of becoming homeless are getting more help today with funding from the province. The government has provided Seniors Services Society of B.C. with an additional $809,000. Joining us now is Jennifer Whiteside. She's the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Minister, thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. Oh, hi, Robin. Really happy to. Hi. Can we talk about how many seniors in this province are at risk of becoming homeless because of uh, mental health and addiction challenges? Are they falling through the cracks? Well, you know, that is precisely the, the sort of the, 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 the situation that this program is really designed to address seniors and not only seniors who are living with mental health and addiction issues, but really seniors generally who may be in more, you know, low income seniors who may be in more vulnerable uh, situations and be at risk of homelessness or be experiencing homelessness. This program is really all about um, uh, uh, providing um, some special expertise for navigation, for assessment, navigation and referral out of the Senior Services Society to partner organizations in different communities who are really on the front lines of um, helping seniors who are in those, those situations. But do you think seniors are a forgotten or neglected group? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think there's no question that, we're, that, that we are seeing um, more pressure as, you know, we're, we're in a housing crisis in, in British Columbia. We're all really, we all are, are really familiar with that. And uh, seniors and vulnerable seniors in particular, and, and particularly those who are experiencing uh, mental health uh, and, and perhaps addiction issues are um, certainly at the more vulnerable end of the scale. So, um, you know, I, 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 don't, we, I don't know that we have a particular count of that, but we know that, um, we, uh, we know that, that service organizations on the front lines have seen an increase of seniors uh, at risk of losing their housing or needing to find housing. Um, and so that, that's really why we're, um, why we're uh, very, very excited about supporting the incredible work that the Senior Services Society is doing. Uh, and so this is the third year of funding for this program, now at $809,000, and bringing on three additional um, communities uh, so that we can expand these services. Okay, tell us how the money breaks down. Where does it go exactly? Yeah, so the Senior Services Societies, if, if you think of it as sort of a hub and spoke model, the Senior Services Society based in New Westminster has the, has the expertise in terms of the assessment and the navigation uh, piece, and they have the staff that do, that do that work. And they work with partner organizations on the front lines in a number of communities, in Nanaimo, Langley, Kelowna, Surrey, in Vancouver's West End, Prince George, and the, the, they're working with um, uh, service organizations in, in all of those communities. And those uh, communities may be, um, are are already providing, uh, you know, services to this population, but probably off the side of their desk, and they may not have uh, the expertise to really identify what the particular need of the individual is. So they can work with the staff at the Senior uh, Senior Services Society to get that sort of expertise in assessment and navigation to support uh, really getting that senior connected with the services that they need. And it might be sort of at the lighter end, it might just be navigating, you know, who do you call to, how do you you contact BC Housing to get on the, um, to you know, to find out about accessing housing through BC Housing, or how do you, uh, you know, work with another provider in a community around housing, or it might be, you know, if you need help with your taxes, how do we connect you with that if that if you have an issue related to your income that is causing uh, issues around uh, uh, around vulnerable vulnerability related to uh, to income, or they might be more complicated um, situations. Uh, how do you connect to healthcare? How do we connect somebody to mental health or counseling services that they that they might need? 
Minister, though, don't we don't we need more housing for these people as well as these services? Oh, I think there's, I, I you know, I, I think Robin, there's no question that, um, that that ensuring that we that we are also paying attention to the needs of seniors and vulnerable seniors, uh, you know, as we as you know, as we work so hard to address the the housing crisis that we're in, that that's very important, and it's again very, you know, it's why programs like this are so are so important because we're really getting very important information from service providers from the front lines about what are the experiences um, of seniors who are who are in these circumstances. And that is really, really going to uh, help to shape um, h- how we approach policy, how we ap- approach, um, you know, supporting service delivery and how we how we how we develop the and invest in the resources that we the services that we that we need to ensure that we don't have seniors falling through the cracks. This program supported 4,500 seniors last year. Um, connect to the service that they needed to um, uh, to ensure that their that their whatever their issue was that 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 issue was was addressed and that might have been connecting to counseling, getting help with their taxes, getting help with housing navigation, or some other kind of uh, kind of support. You know, given the controversy with BC Housing and Atira, how can you be sure that this money is being managed properly? Well, this is going. This isn't going to housing providers. This is going to social service providers. So, uh, for example, it's the Nanaimo Family Life Association. It's the uh, Prince George Council of Seniors. It's the Seniors Outreach Services Society in Kelowna. It's organizations on the ground who are very... Um, who are already um, again sort of connected to this to this uh, to, to this sector, connected to the seniors population. <clears throat> but what Shine does, and you know, I, you know, it, it's helped to, to, to just to, to understand that the program is actually called the Senior Housing Information and Navigation with Ease Program. It is really about creating a collaborative network of all of those of those frontline um, service providers. So that there can be a sharing of uh, of expertise and that really important piece of, um, of of assessment. So some of this funding is going to those organizations so that they can have a dedicated staff person to working with the seniors population and work and and getting support from the Senior Services Society in in New West to to support with that sort of expert level uh, system navigation. Thank you for clarifying all of that. And and thank you for your time this afternoon. Jennifer Whiteside is the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thanks so much, Robin. Have a good afternoon. You too. Hi, everyone. It's Robin Gill filling in for Jill this afternoon. If you've been downtown, you probably noticed for the last two years, the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery were home to a memorial for the Indigenous children who died while living in residential schools. But the city of Vancouver has now brought this memorial to a close, says it was done respectfully. Tamara Bell is the artist who created this, you know, really poignant homage in 2021, and she joins us now. Hi, Tamara. Hi there. First off, did you know this was happening? How did you find out? I found out when um, I received a letter explaining that the memorial was coming down. Um, I think that there was a um, a little bit of an issue with the um, memorial uh, when they sent me the letter is that I was merely the artist and I was not the vigil keeper. So um, I was the one who helped people set it up across the country. So um, I believed um, this was a bit of an issue with the whole um, dismantling of the uh, vigil was that um, um, the city actually didn't ask. They just assumed that I was a, I had been there for two years and I actually um, work in television. And so um, 
Yeah, I wasn't present, but I'm very familiar with the vigil keepers because I do um, I do often drop things off and I do support them and and um, I see the efforts that they make in being there for two years and weathering the cold winters and the many, many difficulties that happen at that site and watching people grieve and struggle and pray. So, yeah, it's um, a shock uh, when I found out. You're obviously very upset about this. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, personally how I feel is that our people so desperately need a place to grieve. We don't have anywhere to go. This, with the, My mom went to residential school and she had mm-hmm. medical experiments done on her. You know, she was so traumatized by the experience. It was, and we grew up, I grew up in real time watching my mom struggle with the impact of, you know, low self-esteem, addiction issues, immense amount of trauma and and I saw my cousins and my aunts and uncles so for me it was very very real and I knew all of my friends whose parents went to residential school were still was struggling when the information broke I remember when you started this you you said this was a healing moment do you think that somehow that has been erased with this closure I feel like what happened is that there was not really a great deal of due diligence on behalf of the city when they issued a press release with my name on it, you know, saying that I had to take the memorial down and, you know, that I was the artist who created it. And I really didn't have a long-term plan. I was an artist. There was no, it was just, it was, there was so much pain at that moment I'd been awake all night long, and I, it helped me really understand my mother when I found out what had happened. I'm sorry, it still moves me. Of course, of course, and, totally understandable. And so um, I just knew our people had to go somewhere. We have 15 synagogues, we have 50 churches, but we have nothing for our people. We have no place for us to go. And I thought, well, I'm just going to take me and my son, who's Coast Salish, down to the steps and we brought some garbage bags of shoes and we placed them in it. Somebody put it on social media and within an hour there was tons of people there feeling the same way I felt and it was so healing and I remember going there about a month later and there was a native lady crying and I saw her and I thought, oh, she probably went to residential school and my heart went out to her. And I was going to walk towards her, and I stopped. And instead, I saw this Iranian man walk up, and he was comforting her, and it was so moving. Mm-hmm. And I thought, other people want to see our people heal from this trauma. And I really thought, wow, that man is, he's such a good man, because he saw somebody in pain, and he helped them. So in and many so- ways, so in many ways, this exhibit resonated with many other Canadians and, and the world. Yeah, it was, you know what, I even had people calling me from the state and put shoes down as a memorial. So it wasn't like it was bound to Vancouver. I mean, it, even the Pope got a pair of shoes. You know, it was, 
it had become symbolically iconic for you know what this represented and as the news broke across the country it gave artists a place where we could go and it was a makeshift place of healing and transformation and it was had an intersectionality where Canadians could go where indigenous people went and there was conversations had that were incredibly truthful and imperative into Canadians healing Tamara, do you think that these items could have been perhaps moved to a museum and 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 made into an exhibit there? Well, I was in discussions about putting them in a museum because they became a part of the fabric of Vancouver for a while. Um, they were really, it was the genesis and the first sort of impetus of like, what are we going to do? And as an artist, you know, I felt like this was, Canadians came to the realization that these horrible, horrible things happened in Canada. And so the shoes were symbolic for that. And I felt they should have gone somewhere um, for, or at least something so that our people would, there would be more education and more understanding and more compassion for what the Indigenous experience is. Tamara, thank you so much for taking time with us this afternoon. I know this was a a tough conversation to have. Thank you so much for your time. It's greatly appreciated, and thank you for reaching out. You bet. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye. This was a startling number. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation says the country's total mortgage debt was $2.08 trillion as of January this year. Now, we're talking strictly residential mortgages here. Up 6% from the year before. But the Federal Housing Agency says that the rate of growth for mortgage debt slowed because of inflation, interest rates, and the cooling housing market. But is the housing market really cooling? That's a question that we're putting to Brendan Ogmanson. He's the chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association. Brendan, happy Friday. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks. Okay, let's talk about real estate. I'm seeing an uptick in prices, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually somewhat startling how quickly this recovery has happened without any real catalyst. We haven't seen mortgage rates come down at all. And if anything, they, they might actually increase given what's happened with, with, uh, with bond yields lately. So uh, it's, it's true. We're, we're seeing a very strong recovery in, in May. Uh, home sales in Vancouver are going to be above a normal May, something we haven't said in about a year. Uh, and home prices are actually almost back to their peak in Vancouver from, from the pandemic. I've spoken to realtors, and I mean, obviously, this is, you know, case by case. They say business hasn't been slow for them at all. So are we still considered a red-hot market here in Vancouver? Well, if you kind of look back over the past year, we did see uh, sales slow dramatically. So at at one point, you know, like normal sales in Vancouver for the year is around like 33,000. We were on like an 18,000 to 20,000 sale pace for a while. So it was really slow after the Bank of Canada started raising rates last year. But things have turned around very quickly. So uh, things are picking up. It's, I, would, I would say you know, sales are kind of normalizing, but listings are so low that as a result, markets get really tight and prices start rising pretty quickly. Is that what you account for the turnaround? The, the turnaround in sales is, is a little bit harder to explain because there's no real driver other than just a lot of pent-up demand. I think 
when we look at at where you know where demand comes from in the, in this market, especially in Vancouver, there are a tremendous amount of people in Vancouver that are in their 30s and 40s, and that just means there's a lot of demand for all types of housing, and it's really hard to suppress that demand for very long. So, I think a lot of it is. There was a minor improvement in affordability because prices came down from their peak uh, for a while, and that maybe brought some people back into the market. But it's it's really hard to to find a single you know a single driver of why sales have recovered so quickly and without you know again like the biggest thing depressing sales was mortgage rates, and we've had no change there. Okay, so are these interest rate hikes having an impact on the market then? They, they did. It was just a little more short term than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm, um, exactly. Generally, generally, like you know, in whenever we model these things and when we're making forecasts, if interest rates are above, you know, a five-year fixed rate mortgage is still above five percent, and with the stress test, that means qualifying over seven. That hasn't changed at all. So there's, there's not really. It's very, it's very surprising given that we've had no movement on rates. Uh, that that sales are starting to re- recover, and it's yeah. I can only point to uh, what I kind of refer to as as a relentless bid from just how much demand there is. Uh, it's it's very very difficult to suppress that demand for long. I thought interest rates would do it. I was very strongly in the camp that if we have high rates, we're going to see very slow sales for a long time until rates come down. Uh, and that's it's. You know, the market right now is proving me wrong. Well, I mean, the Bank of Canada is talking about another increase. What kind of an imp- impact will it have on the housing market? Tough to say, <laughs> right? given, given how right? our sales are, are, are right now. It might change expectations. I think a lot of, you know, when you talk to realtors especially, and when they talk to their clients, I think that the when the Bank of Canada signaled that they were probably done raising rates, that provided some certainty and, and allowed some buyers to get back into the market. Maybe uh, if the Bank of Canada decides to raise rates in June, I think that's that's still kind of a coin flip. Um, maybe that tempers some of that demand again if, if they're kind of pointing to uh, further rate hikes. But um, again, this market's been tremendously resilient to basically everything that's been thrown at it. So it's it's hard to say that an extra 25 basis point increase in variable rates or you know an extra you know 25 to 50 basis point increase in fixed mortgage rates is going to do that much. Well, I'm freaking out in two years when my mortgage comes due, so I'm worried about, I mean, I had a great great interest rate. I'm not the only one. Is it a buyer's or seller's market, though? Right now, because of where inventory's at, we were actually, with on the new listing side, we're 30% below what's normal. Uh, total active listings, and so the total amount of homes for sale in Vancouver is under 9,000 homes, which is really, really low. Uh, so even with just normal sales, it's not like sales are setting records. With just normal amounts of sales, we're, we're in a seller's market because there's just so few listings out there. Yeah. What are we looking at for the average price now nowadays in, in the Lower Mainland, Vancouver specifically? Vancouver, for an, the average price is, is in May going to be back over $1.3 million, which is basically where it peaked in February 2022. Uh, we got back there, kind of we went down about 10 to 15%, and now we're right back to the peak. Single-family homes are, I think, 2.2 million. Uh, an apartment, even average in Greater Vancouver, is about $815,000. So it's been a sticker shock. I didn't think we would get back <laughs> to these prices so quickly uh, after after they, they fell from the peak when, when rates started rising, but, but here we are. What about uh, a region like Surrey? Fraser Valley is fascinating. That's in our, what we call the Fraser Valley Real yeah. Estate Board region. Series included, so obviously the largest market in that Fraser Valley Real Estate Board. Um, same 
like a similar story, but uh, prices in every market outside of Vancouver during the pandemic, you remember the story, mm-hmm. like a lot of people were going out to those areas. Prices went up really fast in those areas, like 60, 70% uh, as peak. Uh, over the past year, they've fallen about 25%, and now prices are starting to rise again. So different, a little bit different than Vancouver, where the peak wasn't quite as high in Vancouver as it was in Fraser Valley. So we haven't gotten back to those peak pricing levels, but sales are really recovering there as well. And I think a lot of it is, is um, uh, people coming back to the market, looking at homes that were 1.6% you know, 1.6 million at, at the peak, and now they're 1.4, and because you know that's the savings, and they're kind of cut that demand is coming back, especially in the sort of least interest rate sensitive parts of the market where people are buying with a lot of equity or even all cash. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brendan, thanks so much for spending your Friday afternoon with us. My pleasure. Well, Lululemon is expanding its operations here in Vancouver and creating 2,600 jobs over the next five years. And the federal government is making this happen by granting the company the ability to hire foreign workers for certain positions. And how they're doing this is that they don't have to apply for a labor market impact assessment and how that works. It's a process used to determine if a company needs a foreign worker to fill a position because of a lack of Canadian workers or permanent residents available to do the job. Sean Fraser, our Minister of Immigration, is here now to talk about what this means and why it was necessary. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Was Lululemon actually going to pick up and move if you didn't do this? Look, there's no way to know with certainty, but the risk was absolutely real. Uh, this is a company of uh, global reputation that countries around the world would very much love to have the economic benefits in their own backyard. Uh, there are 9,000 employees of Lululemon across Canada, but 28,000 globally. Uh, this is a company that has options that could base themselves in the United States and Canada or in European markets. But they want it to be in Canada, uh, but they wanted to make sure that they had access to the talent they need to continue to grow. This is a company with a $40 billion market capitalization. That just doesn't happen very often in our country. And we want to do everything we can to make sure that they have the talent that they need so they can continue to grow and deliver economic benefits to us here in Canada. Minister, how many other companies are getting this kind of exemption to allow more foreign workers in? So this is a uh, specific kind of policy that's unique to the immigration agreement between Canada and British Columbia. And Ontario is the only other province that has the same provision negotiated in our agreement between the federal and provincial governments. This specific program has only ever been used once in Canada's history. And it was for the Microsoft facility that's in downtown Vancouver, which has led to significant investment by the company at Microsoft that's going to make sure that has seen uh, significant hirings and investment continued in the downtown Vancouver area. This particular uh, instance with Lululemon doesn't come with uh, simple access to uh, workers that will displace Canadians. It's quite different. In exchange for access to this program that allows them to tap into workers who are not available in large numbers in Canada, Lululemon's required to make a significant investment, hiring 2,600 people, but they also have to commit over the next number of years to develop opportunities to have a knowledge transfer so those benefits over time accrue to Canadian workers. That's what we expect to see through training and mentorship opportunities that I have faith will lead to more Canadians working, including the sustaining of Canadian jobs that currently exist within the company. But a big part of this is that we don't have the domestic labour needed, right? Absolutely. There's no question that we're dealing with a labour shortage. Just to put this into perspective, Canada has had 
one of the strongest economic recoveries of any advanced economy in the world. There's more people working in our country today than at any other point in Canadian history. And despite the strength of our economic recovery, there's 700,000 jobs that need to be filled in this country. And the jobs that we're dealing with at Lululemon are very particular high-skilled positions that are not available in significant supply. I have no question that if these Canadian workers with the skills that are in demand uh, are available, they will also benefit from the opportunities of the company. But we know if we're going to allow them to succeed in continuing to operate in Canada, they need to have reliable access to the workers that they need to grow. 2,600 additional jobs is no small feat. This is going to result in hundreds of millions of dollars of economic growth in the province of British Columbia, which is, I think, a good thing that we're happy to support by making an exemption under the Canada-BC Immigration Agreement. Which industries and which jobs are in demand uh, for foreign workers? Uh, So we've done an assessment in collaboration with Employment and Social Development Canada to identify the sectors that are facing the greatest demand. And we've got new immigration rules that will kick in in the second half of this year to have targeted draws for workers in those particular sectors. They include uh, tech, agriculture, transportation, the skilled trades, and healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Some of the positions uh, that we're dealing with in Lululemon fall into some of these categories, but the labor shortage obviously impacts so much more than one company and so much more than one sector. We're going to continue to increase our immigration levels as we uh, uh, made public during last year's immigration levels plan. And we're going to continue to leverage temporary programs as well for those positions where there are not enough Canadian workers with the skills required in the communities where they're required. There's no simple solution to these things, but by leveraging our immigration advantage in Canada and recognizing that we continue to have the ability to welcome newcomers to this country with the skills we need to grow, we're going to be able to create a competitive advantage that's unique to our country that will allow us to win the race for talent because the entire world right now is competing for, competing for the same pool of workers. And if we can bring those high-skilled, high-paying jobs to Canada instead of some other jurisdiction, we all stand to benefit. You know, you talked about your immigration levels. Uh, what are your immigration targets? And, and, and tell us more about your campaign. So we had made a decision a couple of... Um, uh, after we formed government in uh, 2015 to increase our immigration levels significantly, but not quite to the level we're at today. We're aiming to increase it to 500,000 by 2025, and that's new permanent residents. Many of those people live in Canada today, but will transition to permanent residency from a current temporary status. And to put this into perspective, the last year before we formed government, Canada was welcoming only 240,000 newcomers. So we've more than doubled the immigration ambition for Canada, but that's a reflection of the labor market dynamics and economic needs that we're facing today and will face over the next generation. We have to recognize, in addition to the labor shortage, we're dealing with a very serious demographic trend. 50 years ago, there were seven workers for every retired person in this country. Today, that number is three. If we want to sustain our public services and, importantly, recruit the workers with the skills that will be in demand for the next generation as more and more people from the baby boomer generation retire, we're going to be able to make sure we continue to fill the gaps in the healthcare uh, sector, continue to take advantage of the opportunities in the tech sector, and make sure that we continue to support the sectors that will help foster a strong economic recovery and put us on solid footing for the next few decades. But Minister, what about the infrastructure that's that we need for these newcomers? Housing is expensive. Healthcare has been having problems. What is your government doing to address those issues? Those are two of the most important issues that we need to address if we're going to be successful in not just getting people to Canada, but setting them up for success after they arrive. My view is that the answer to the housing crisis or healthcare challenges that the country is facing 
is not to shut the door on newcomers. It's to tailor our immigration programs in a way that will help alleviate these social constraints rather than exacerbate them. In fact, when I mentioned the sectors in demand, I mentioned the skilled trades and housing in particular. Later this year, we're going to have targeted draws to welcome workers specifically in those sectors to make sure that the people who are coming to Canada can actually work in our healthcare system. In fact, since 2016, we've welcomed more than 25,000 healthcare workers to this country. If we continue to welcome healthcare workers and the skilled tradespeople who are going to build more homes, we're going to be able to use that as part of the solution to relieve some of these social challenges. Now, this is not easy to do, and immigration is not the only policy lever in the toolkit. But we need to use every tool at our disposal if we're going to build the houses that are necessary to accommodate a growing population and Canadians who live here now, and importantly, to welcome the healthcare workers who will take care of our aging population. I'd point out, just to conclude the point, about a third of the doctors in this country are newcomers. About a quarter of the nurses in this country are newcomers. If we didn't rely on immigration to bolster the healthcare sector in particular, we'd be in a world of hurt. But because we continue to welcome newcomers with the skills that are in demand and that we need to sustain healthy communities, we're going to be able to continue to use immigration as part of the strategy to combat the pressures on the healthcare system and housing sector. Uh, Minister, I'm sure these topics are never going to go away, and I'm sure you're going to be talking about them for years to come. But for now, thank you for your time this afternoon. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for having me. I recently read an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal suggesting that inflation has peaked and now we have to brace for deflation. What does deflation even mean? I find it all very overwhelming and confusing. So that is why I am turning to Stephen Gordon. He's with the Department of Economics at Laval University. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Do you think this article was premature in suggesting that inflation has peaked? Probably not. Uh, we've already seen it come down. We kind of knew that um, a lot of the inflation that we saw the last little you know, year or so was driven by uh, a one, one-off spike in um, prices of uh, well, food and oil uh, immediately following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you know, it takes, of course, it takes 12, year, 12 months for a 12-month inflation rate to sort of cancel out. Sort of for, for 12 months, we were always comparing prices after the Russian invasion with prices before. And as we sort of move along there, um, prices aren't going to come down, but they, we're not going to, they're, not still, they're not still increasing. So just the mechanics of how inflation is calculated, we, we were pretty sure that inflation would come down pretty quickly uh, as soon as that Russia shock was absorbed. Um, but we're not there yet. Like, we're not out of it even, yet. Yeah, like, it's, uh, like the, bank is, the Bank of Canada... Uh, says, yeah, we're getting down to three looks pretty easy. Getting from three down to two looks looks a lot harder. So is the Bank of Canada's strategy of raising interest rates helping? Well, yes. Um, the, the, the problem is uh, too much spending. And higher interest rates make it harder to spend. You know, people borrow less just to, you know, to buy things. Um, you know, when mortgage rates go up, uh, mortgage payments go up, and people and households have less money to spend on other things. So, yeah, it's, it's working. It's basically the tool that we have. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it's the best tool we have, believe right. it or not. What do you predict uh, next month with the Bank of Canada governor? Do you think he's going to pause or, or raise interest rates? He's sort of hinting that he's going to raise them. Yeah. Um, no one really knows because they, they don't know right now either. Uh, they, they just Everyone is watching the numbers come in month after month and quarter after quarter. 
Um, so far, inflation is coming down the way they expected it to. Um, the economy is still running very hot. Uh, you know, unemployment is still bouncing around like at record lows. Um, you know, there are lots of job openings still. So, you know, the economy is cooled a bit, probably, but the, the bank doesn't know if it's enough. Uh, they might go up more. They're, they have a pause because they had raised it so quick, so far, so quickly. Um, that they want to make sure, they just want to sit back and see how, see how it works out. And they might continue to do that as well. Right. Mortgages are obviously a big issue. Okay, the next phase is deflation. What is it and when does that take place? Well, I don't think it's very likely to see deflation. I mean, what we're seeing now is disinflation, which is just slowing down. Deflation would be prices actually falling. That is actually very rare uh, and generally only happens uh, when there's a severe economic contraction. So think of the Great Depression or the first few months of COVID. Um, we, you know, we saw uh, very, you know, very large economic contraction. Some, lots of prices fell. But um, that's talking about that at this point is uh, very far away from where we are. We're still talking about very low unemployment rates, very strong markets everywhere, lots of economic activity. We're a long ways away from the sort of economic contraction that would generate deflation. Prices are still pretty high, though, aren't they? Yeah, we have to make a distinction between high prices and uh, and rising prices. Um, You know, the Bank of Canada can't do anything to make food cheaper. Uh, the only thing they can really do is force people to spend money on other things so that you know, other prices, prices of other goods and services might come down or might grow even more slowly so that the index, the total index, uh, you know, grows still, but at a, at a, you know, around the 2% target. You, call, you, you were talking about disinflation, right? Yeah. What are the effects? That's just, that's just like slowing down. Yeah, what are, the, what are the effects on the, aver- on the average person? Well, it's, it's um, generally good news because we're going from inflation of, you know, I think a year over year we were, you know, eight percent a year, down to three, you know, three and perhaps two percent a year. Uh, that's good news. You you want more stability in in, uh, in prices uh, so that you, you know the purchasing power of your of your income uh, is stable and not not declining so fast. And this is what the bank is trying to do. You know, we have a, they have a a, a mandate to. Uh, um, aim for two percent inflation, and for thirty years they were pretty good at it. Um, got, to, got sort of swiped, sideswiped by COVID in Russia, and now they're hopefully getting back to it. Uh, earlier in the show, we were talking to the BC Real Estate Association, and it seems like um, the market isn't cooling like it like they thought it would. It's rebounding. What do you make of that? Yeah, so you know this would make, this might be one of those things that uh, the bank is looking at. Of course, you know. The Bank of Canada is the Bank of Canada. It's not the Bank of Vancouver. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, Thanks for so, clarifying. I mean, it, it, yeah, so it's, it's looking. It's going to looking like a lot of things, uh, but that's certainly going to be one of them. Um, you know, they when you usually expect higher interest rates to, you know, uh, act as a break on uh, that kind of a sector, and if the housing market starts to rebound in the face of, you know, interest rates that are you know higher than they used to be, but still not very high historically. Then that might be one of those things that uh, might uh, trigger another increase, another round of increases in the interest rate. Regardless, though, in 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 twenty twenty six, we're all going to be paying higher mortgages because the rates can't drop that significantly in two years. Well, they could, but I mean, that was, if they did, it was because uh, something really bad happened, and you know, we can we can we hit it, 
we actually were worried about having deflation. Well, the news cycle is still very busy. You never know what could happen, right, Stephen? Yeah, that's. It's been very busy. It's been a very bad couple of years. You're saying, you know, if all goes well, because we've had a lot of bad bad surprises in the last few years. Yeah. Any other predictions? Um, everybody is just watching the numbers. Uh, that's it, nobody has a crystal ball. They everyone has projections. They, they, but everybody's going to be reacting to the new data as they come in, and uh, that's all we can do is sit and watch. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, Stephen, thank you so much for spending this Friday afternoon with us. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, so Canada's federal privacy regulator is expanding its investigation into open AI. This is the creator of ChatGPT to address concerns about the potentially harmful consequences. They're specifically looking at a complaint that ChatGPT had collected and disclosed personal information without consent. Several provinces are involved with this investigation. And joining us from the University of Calgary is Professor Shin Wong. Shin, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Robin. Thanks for having me. Can you explain how someone's personal information without consent would would get out there with ChatGPT? Um, okay, that's uh, that's a good question. And so that's uh, when you accept the uh, creature account uh, with any of the social media and also with these uh, chatbots. And so usually it asks you to for your consent. And so I'm not sure how many people actually understand all these things. And so they probably just click, okay, I agree, I, uh, I agree. And so all the information, all your personal information, for example, your account information and uh, um, how you actually um, will interact with the system, the question you actually enter in the system and also how you actually respond to these answers will actually collect it by the company. So basically and people so that, are not reading the fine print. Yes, and so basically all this information, uh, if you link your account with some social media, and so that could have potential all the social media, um, you know, all the information could be uploaded to the system as well. Uh, Professor, Italy has banned the platform. Is that the right move? Oh, okay. <laughs> that is uh, um, different government, actually, they proceed uh, differently because uh, these misinformation cause a lot of the uh, problem of troubles and uh, um, so um, so far the governments they are taking the different approaches and uh, so uh, the EU and for example the Italy uh, temporary bans the chat GPT um, but uh, there are also uh, some other different approaches and uh, um, for example uh, in UK in Britain and also America and so they are actually proposed more like a light touch approach and so there are no new rules and the regulatory uh, boundary, and but apply the existing regulation uh, to the AI system. Um, so um, both of the approach they have the pros and cons. And uh, for example, for these uh, light touch, and um, so I, I guess it will boost the investment and also uh, turn this country and uh, into uh, more like AI superpower because people. Uh, could be, uh, and also the technology company could invest more and to develop the AI technologies. Um, but um, if it is, um, uh, if it is uh, too uh, soft to touch, and so they are also uh, have the problem, maybe, you know, what would the degrees of the, the AI could cause the risk, right? So that will 
um, you know, how we should, um, you know, monitoring and the disclosure, uh, the information um, as the degrees of the risk actually arises. You you also say (laughs) that there should be an investigation into the ways it can be sexist and racist. Can you tell us more about that? Um, One of the, you know, the recent example uh, that used uh, the chat GPT um, is, um, you know, one of the law uh, professors at the uh, UCLA. And uh, so he conducted a study and uh, so basically talked to the, uh, with uh, the chatbot and software and uh, asked, um, you know, asked basically asked, okay, whether we can provide some of the information about uh, um, the scholar who actually studied law and uh, um, and also have some sexual <laughs> harassment. And so that is, uh, uh, that basically come up with some of the professor um, who actually never had the sexual harassment and, uh, but uh, uh, appear in the paragraph being generated. Um, so that could be one example, or uh, there's some other example. For example, um, the HR, the human resource, when they hiring people uh, currently, uh, they are not always like every step actually screened by the, the uh, people from HR and the many of them, they use a software to do it. And so there would be, um, there already have some studies at showing, um, like for example, if the same resume that use uh, uh, the female and also the, you know, the, the male's name and the, but exactly the same working experience and the, so, there, there could be some discrimination actually uh, to hiring more intent to hire the, the male and then the female. Um, but uh, currently there could be some of the risk. Uh, for example, if uh, uh, one company receives a lot of the resumes and so they dump the resume into the <laughs> some of these uh, AI model and ask some AI model who is the, the best candidate for the position. And so in this case, and because the, all these AI models, when they train and they based on the, you know, the data being collected from the internet. So if there's any bias or discrimination actually in these training data, uh, then that will cause these, the whole model will behave, you know, with a bias and also um, discrimination, you know, behavior. And so in this case, if we use this AI model, try to hire someone that could be very biased and, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What other threats do you see? um, I think the the major uh, threats uh, for this, um, um, for these AI model, as, you know, the, the people always talk about this, I think the, uh, the biggest one is the misinformation, right? So the all the the deep fake and the, so the you know all these model generated some of these even the videos or the audios and the mimic some people, and uh, uh, so this is one of the risk. And also these misinformation could be spread over the internet, um, and um, also um, these uh, because the, all these models they are preliminary, they are black box. So uh, it's uh, wholly depend on what exactly their training model and how this model being built. So it's also hard to interpret it, uh, what exactly um, this, you know, the, the things could be generated from this model. So if we do not um, um, 
take care of this model, and so the risk could be out of the control, right? So this is also the the major things uh, that the, the people are worried about these days, and also uh, it can be used for um, deliberate like um, abuse, uh, right? So mm-hmm. for example, yeah, yeah. So the disrupting like elections and the yeah, and spreading like medical misinformation could be like even worse, right? So the people actually will will uh, will trust all these whatever the model say or whatever saying on the internet. So that could be very uh, risky and dangerous. Has the tech world unleashed a monster that now can't be controlled, and we haven't even established rules or laws to regulate or monitor it? Yeah, it's. Um, uh, one of the things uh, basically uh, currently the AI researchers are doing is um, uh, is basically use AI and to to manage to police AI. Um, so, but how do we for, police for sure, it? How do we police yeah. it? So, so, so basically, is um, the the thing is. Uh, um, because we all this model, and so because they learn fast, and so they collect a, a huge amount of the data from the internet, they can chain and learn like in every second. Um, so one of the things we could do is uh, we actually use the computer. As they tend to work faster uh, than than the people, right? So if we ask the human being, as, okay, which information is misinformation? And uh, so that could be um, uh, that could be impossible to to manage of these AI tools. And so what maybe is necessary is uh, uh, we actually developed some of the tools. Actually, the researcher are doing that. We de- we are developing some of the machine learning model, and so we can identify uh, what type of the information is misinformation, and uh, because they can understand what exactly the model. Uh, produce um, from their output, and so then if we have these tools and uh, to identify the misinformation, so that can prevent, right? So it's more like uh, uh, you can imagine the people actually make the computer virus, right? So the virus actually spread out, uh, but we also have the these antivirus software which can identify um, the virus and also stop the the virus attacking your computer. So it's more something like this, right? So we have these AI, and that could uh, make the misinformation spread it. But we also have the AI actually can police these AI to identify what, where is the misinformation and also stop the, the misinformation being spread. Out. That's an interesting concept, AI, policing AI. Uh, Professor Shin Wong, thank you so much for your time uh, and your insight. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Professor Shin Wong is with the University of Calgary.